Hello and welcome to the MISAM podcast. This is the podcast where we talk to MISAM members and associates about their current and ongoing research into the medieval world of Central Europe. I'm Karen Culver and today it is my great pleasure to meet and talk with Leslie Carr-Regal about her research into the right of reprisal, which is a customary law of international trade. Leslie grew up in the US and studied at Kalamazoo College in Michigan before transferring to complete her BA degree at the American University in Rome. She took an MA from the University of Durham with a thesis titled The Power of Poo, Waste and the Medieval Environment, a Comparative Study of Three Cities, Siena, London and Gdansk. She completed her second MA at the CEU, where her thesis was Waste Management in Medieval Krakow, 1257-1500. She continued at CEU for her doctoral studies, defending her thesis in 2021, titled Italian Traders in Poland, 13-1500. She also was at CEU at the same time as me, so we are sort of old colleagues. (laughs) I was doing my master's at the time. Leslie's worked as a teaching fellow at Princeton University Global History Lab and most recently was a fellow at the Kate Humberger College Legal Unity and Pluralism at the University of Munster. Leslie now works as a freelance editor and is currently expecting her first child at the end of February 2024. Many congratulations. Thank you very much. And welcome to the Mesem podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Can I start with the most basic question? What does the right of reprisal mean? Is it similar to a letter of mark? And was there any connection with retaliation? Well, that's where we should begin with the definitions. Uh, So what the right of reprisal is, is best explained through an example. So let's say that you are a merchant from Buddha. And you are traveling to Frankfurt and you do a bunch of trade there. You then leave and you leave behind debts in Frankfurt. The next time that a merchant from Buddha arrives in Frankfurt, their goods are taken away and they are used to pay off the debts which the previous merchant had left. Now, they, the second merchant might have no knowledge of the first one, but their goods are still taken. Sometimes they're even taken hostage until further debts, if the money is still owing, can be repaid. And this is a perfectly legal process. That is a writ or a right of reprisal. Uh, It is often confused with a letter of mark. So the letter of mark is a privateering commission, which occurs in the early modern period, usually. So starting around 1600. And here you have a ship, which is uh, designated by a monarch, and saying, you are permitted to go out and harass our enemies, bring back as much booty as possible, all within a sort of wartime context. Uh, This is very different from the right of reprisal, as rights of reprisal are for a very specific amount, uh, while letters of mark are very open in general, and rights of reprisal are issued only in peacetime. They're not a wartime event. The reason the two are conflated is that they both come with the idea of communal responsibility. So the the people with whom I am having issues, all of them, if even if just one representative is the problem, all of them are liable uh, as well that the naming. So the right of reprisal is older 
and in many cases, especially in French examples, is called le marque. Later on, it transmorgifies into the, the letter of marque. Uh, so that those are the two differences. As for retaliation, uh, this is a very modern reading of the word. So reprisal, something which you go in vengeance, vendetta. These are uh, very different from how it was conceived during the medieval period. So reprisals do not have this you know, negative, passionate connotations. So you say the right of reprisal was a legal instrument. Uh, what was the process by which a merchant could claim this right? This can happen through a number of different avenues. So it definitely depends on the region and the uh, the country, kingdom, or city-state in which you're working. So the procedure is, though, generally that a merchant who has been wronged, who has had debts left with him, so your, your merchants in Frankfurt, they will attempt to get their money back. You have to try at least somehow to get the money back, usually in the jurisdiction of the, the other individuals. This also applies to piracy, which is another place where reprisals come into play. So if you have been attacked by pirates on the North Sea, and you know that they come from the Netherlands, the Low Countries, you would go there and you would say, hey, I would like my money back, please, people, I, I need this. Uh, and they say, nope, you're out of luck. We don't see any pirates here. Do you see any pirates here? We don't know of any pirates here. Uh, and you're sent on your way. Well, you will then go back to your home jurisdiction, bringing some proof of the event that occurred and submit it to the courts there. Uh, it will then rise up, usually going to the highest court in the land and often the monarch or whoever happens to be the highest legal authority. And they will send letters back to the other jurisdiction saying, hey, we, you know, we, this is a problem, you need to fix it. Nothing happens. Then you will eventually have released you a writ of reprisal for which you can then legally take the goods of any individual who's coming from that jurisdiction. Was there any time limit on this? Ah, theoretically, yes. In practice, no, not really. Uh, people would want things to be done, obviously, as quickly as possible. But on average, these cases take years. And letters have to go back and forth. So it's, say, two to three years on average to get something like this fixed. But they can go on for decades. You have the heirs of the heirs of the original person who are still trying to claim their money. This is not uncommon to see 25, 30, 40 years. Oh, my God. Yeah. In the meantime, the merchants uh, gone bankrupt. Yes, that can happen. And sometimes it's the widow who is you know, pleading with the court, pleading to have this resolved. Um, it can be quite bad. I suppose it would be, yes. Um, I know from reading some of your papers that you are researching this with the aim of writing a monograph on the subject. What aspect of reprisals are you going to be looking at? What's new about your research? Well, I was lucky enough at the Kate Hamburg College to have had a year to really at least get the research pinned down for this project um, and about halfway written. So we still have a bit more to go. Uh, but the idea is that this will be a summative work. So previous to this, many different people have researched reprisals, especially in the 19th century. It was fascinating for the French and for the Italians. 
Um, more recently, we've had a lot of research done in the Hansa area, so up in the, the North Sea and the Baltic, touching on maritime violence, since the two are related, piracy, um, as well as more modern research in uh, the Iberian Peninsula and in Italy. But they're all very regionally specific. So you talk about reprisals in Genoa, reprisals in Florence, reprisals in England. Uh, but my work will look at this on a global scale or a European medieval global scale, as we might say, uh, and attempting to show larger patterns. How did this operate across many fields, across many jurisdictions, uh, and what are the general rules of engagement when dealing with reprisals? And was it very different throughout Europe? Ah, this gets back to my original question, why I started on this road to begin with. What the usual thesis that I was presented with was that reprisals were a part of um, Lex Mercatoria, so the law of merchants or merchant law, which was essentially ubiquitous across all of Europe. And to me, that sounded absolutely ridiculous. This is medieval times. There's so many things which are completely divergent. It's very strange to have something which would be that common across such a vast area, even today, um, especially back in the past. And so I set out to prove that, haha, this theory was just bonkers. However, when I got into the actual research, I was really startled to find that it does tend to be very, very similar as a practice across Europe, going from Norway to Serbia to Italy to England, almost everywhere you have this same practice going on. Hmm. I can only think that the practice was the same because merchants were traveling from Buddha to Frankfurt and therefore they took the ideas with them. In some ways, yes, we do see immediate crossover between different regions. But more than that, it seems to be that it was a common answer to a common problem. Uh, having credit was necessary, especially for long-distance trade, which most of what reprisals are about. Because you have reprisals, they tend to be between two different jurisdictions. So two different countries, two different city-states. Um, but you have an issue when you can't get the debts back, right? Because they've left, they've gone, or they're pirates. You never saw them to begin with, or they came and conked you over the head and ran off with your money. How do you get it back? So this is a common problem across Europe, and the answer to it was communal responsibility. We will apply, if you, from whatever jurisdiction, do bad things here in our town, all of you will suffer. And in this way, attempting to both limit the number of people who would be willing to do that and to actually get the money back when it was taken. So if it was an answer to a common problem, what about other trading merchant issues? I'm just thinking of weights, measures, currencies, um, the amount of silver in a coin. Were any of those things standardized? As I had the impression they weren't. Indeed, they weren't. Uh, these are often very, very diverse. Even within a country, you can have different pounds, which are different amounts, right? The actual weight of this are the volumes which you're dealing with. A, a ton is a different ton here and a different ton there, similar to how today we have imperial measurements and metric. 
all of them working simultaneously, but imagine that multiplied by thousands. Uh, so it's very complicated and very complex. Similarly with coinage, you have different uh, metal ratios and unpredictable sometimes metal ratios between different types of coins, thalers as opposed to ducats, as opposed to grossi. All of these can be somewhat calculated because people did calculate them and there were exchange rates and they float similar to how we have today, uh, depending on how much coinage is coming in, how much is going out and the deemed amounts which are within them, gold, be it gold or silver. Uh, but it's it was incredibly complicated. Uh, reprisals, on the other hand, were less so. In fact, they are far more generalized as a practice, um, as a legal practice, as opposed to a much more physical element like coins or uh, poundage. Yeah, I, I can sort of see that. And I suppose the merchants would turn up once a year and the trading in weights and measures would be carried out every single day. Mm -hmm. um, so you've got a merchant who leaves a debt and then a merchant from the same town community goes and is relieved of his funds to repay the debt. The example you've given is someone from Buddha trading in Frankfurt leaves the debt. The next time a Buddha merchant goes to Frankfurt, they have their goods impounded to pay for the debt. So they are now at a loss. What do they do? This is an excellent question and is surprisingly obscured in the sources in general. Uh, we know that it was taken, but what you'd presume that they'd try to get it back somehow. We do certainly have letters of complaint uh, sent back to Buddha, in this case, being like, hey, this is what happened to me. Can anyone find the original merchant guy and get him to pay off this debt? So that happens. The other way that this can be managed is that the city, state, or the, the town will have a fund which they will set up, which will be specifically applied to these types of situations. So the Buddha merchant goes home, they ask their uh, local town council, this is what happened, here is my proof, will you please give me the money? And sometimes they will be reimbursed. In other cases, though, they're just out of luck. I can see the beginnings of insurance there. Unfortunately for people at the time, uh, insurance, which they did have insurance contracts, especially doing trade by sea, and so sometimes... Mm, but usually this does not cover issues like piracy, right? These are considered an acts of God in the way that we would determine them today. And the insurance you could purchase does not usually cover reprisals. One way to attempt to get around this is by getting a letter of safe conduct. So if you, merchant from Buddha, are able to get from, say, the Holy Roman Emperor a letter of safe conduct or the local bishop that says, okay, you cannot be taken for a reprisal. It is specifically written into the letter. So even if you know everyone pounces on you as soon as they hear, oh, Merchant of Buddha, we've got him. Well, you roll out your scroll and you show them and say, hey, this is my charter. This is uh, protecting me. And they're like, oh, man, I need to wait around for another one. And thus the case continues to be prolonged. Uh, this is another one of the reasons why you will have very lengthy, <laughs> lengthy times before these are dealt with. But it must have made trade difficult and almost 
at times impossible. If everyone in Buddha knew there was a big debt owed in Frankfurt, well, let's trade with Krakow instead. You, we do run into this, particularly in the northern Italian cities. So let's say between Siena, Padua, Bologna, Florence, they have uh, ongoing reprisals, counter-reprisals, because this happens too. You took our person's goods. That doesn't seem fair to us. We will show a counter-reprisal. And so back and forth, back and forth. To get around this, certain towns would have uh, bilateral treaties that they would set up saying, doesn't matter what happens. No one takes reprisals just to avoid this situation. Tends to happen between two towns which trade with each other a lot. And indeed, if they had these tit-for-tat reprisals constantly ongoing, then it would sort of decimate trade in general. Um, for that, you you have these treaties set up. Another way to manage it, and this is done in the Mediterranean between generally the kingdoms of Aragon and Castilla and the French uh, trading towns on the coast, Montpellier or Narbonne, that they would have a special tax set up, specifically set aside to deal with reprisals. So everyone pays a 1-2% charge, and then anytime there's an issue, again, they're able to dip into those funds and pay off the other side. But yes, it was in some ways an impediment to trade, but the other option is if we don't have this mechanism to try to deal with debt and credit issues, then who do we trust? How do we know that the next time I go, well, that then this merchant from Buddha might still leave behind debts. Every merchant from Buddha would leave behind debts. So it's a very chicken and egg kind of problem. Um, you've talked about the community typically being the town or the city from which the merchant came from and was trading in. Was it always a town or city or were there other forms of community? Um, I suppose really the question is, what's the definition of a community with regard to the right of reprisal? And this is a very good question, goes somewhat to the heart of the entire thing. Who is communally responsible? And this is actually the chapter I'm working on now, which deals very much with uh, citizenship and the formation of the idea of a citizen or an individual and their attachment to a community. So what we see in from the source base is that it, especially at first, but also through most of the most of the period, it is the town. It is your more local community. It's not all Frenchmen, right? It's not all Hungarians. It's not all Poles who are being uh, brought into this issue. It's those from Paris, those from Buda, those from Krakow. These are the ones who are designated in the writ itself. So in the issued declaration of reprisal, it specifies who and where specifically the individuals who are coming from are the ones who are liable. Now, the actual size of that community can depend on the community itself. So this is easier to see in the uh, Italian city-states. So you have Florence, for example, very popular reprisal place, uh, both having them issued against and <laughs> issuing them themselves. Uh, so it includes the city proper, so you know within the city walls, any of the uh, residents, and uh, there's debates on that. Can you apply it to people who are resident but not citizens? The general, it comes down to, yeah, you can apply it pretty much to everybody, which is quite interesting. Um, but it also includes their contado, or the hinterland around the city. So poor peasant X 
in theory, who is taking his goods to the town of Piacenza, who has issued a reprisal, they can also be taken. And this, um, even though they're not from Florence, they are under their dominion, and therefore it can be applied to them. If we look at this uh, in other circumstances, we will see different gradations, often through the knowledge of the other area. So what do I mean by that? You have a merchant from Norway who comes and leaves behind debts in London. Now, they're from a specific town in Norway. They're not from you know the entire country. But the writ of reprisal will be issued against all Norwegians. So there, sometimes you have the entire the entire kingdom, who is theoretically this is applied to. Now, probably the merchants who are arriving in London tend to come from maybe one, two, three different places in Norway. But it is applied to all of them in theory. So this seems to occur when you have less knowledge about the region. It's further distant, right? This isn't somewhere that you trade with all the time. If the English were applying this to French case, they would say, you know, the people in Bordeaux, people in Calais, very specific. But if it's a further out location, then it might be just no, Norwegians in general, any of them who come by. And then those are the guys that we will apply it to. So it, it does depend. Hmm. I, I was actually wondering if it would be down to uh, the Goldsmiths Guild of Kluge. No, we don't see it getting that specific. It's definitely applied to political units, the smallest of which would be a city or town. It would definitely be something that had over 5,000 people and was sending out merchants. Generally, you'd, you'd expect that as well, because if you want your money paid off, you have to apply it to a large enough area that people are going to come from there. So if you have a tiny little town of and no one from there is going to be coming ever again to see you, well, that's not a very useful reprisal to have. So you might expand it beyond there into a, a more regional level. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, you've given a lot of examples from... Iberia, from Italy. Was it very much the same here in Central Europe? It was. We see the same in the cities between the, uh, in the Holy Roman Empire, so various towns like Frankfurt, uh, or with uh, Nuremberg. Similarly, they will have uh, treaties also set up, but you have a wonderful map which uh, routes all of these for different periods and is crisscrossing. And you can really see from that who were the important trading partners. You will also sometimes have entire kingdoms who set up uh, trading agreements between each other. We see this between Bohemia, uh, the Kingdom of Poland, and Hungary, for example, in the mid-14th century. They, uh, there's an attempt to do this. It's not entirely successful due to other political reasons. Uh, but they're at least attempting to make these larger groupings to try to sort of wrangle trade and get a situation going. Would you call it as far as part of state formation, state building? This can be seen that way, especially as as we go from the early period. I, most of my research starts around the year 1000. And really around, we have the 12th century Renaissance, right? And we get a lot more trade going on. And therefore, these issues become more serious. But we see a development over time, which by the 15th and definitely into the 16th century, that reprisals become fewer, especially into the 17th century. Then they start to really, um, really peter off. 
And that is, is as we see in the modern, well, early modern state formation, we also see that the highest echelons of power, the highest judicial authorities, the king, the senate, the doge, these are the individuals who are dealing more and more with these problems, who are the only ones who can. They're now considered larger international uh, issues of diplomacy, issues of state. Um, and indeed, that is a clear sign of state formation. Where earlier a an individual judge might be able to you know, issue a reprisal for some town between Frankfurt and Buda, now it has to go all the way up to the king, and they are the one who is the only legitimate authority to release these. Hmm. And if the king every five minutes is being asked for right of reprisal, maybe the king will finally think, hmm, let's make a treaty with the kingdom next door you do sometimes that is actually a good uh, a good test that could be a litmus test for how many reprisals were issued and then do we see some sort of change in general reprisals are not super common because they only deal with really high amounts now this isn't legislated anywhere specifically but it tends to be if you're dealing with four ducats you know four florins that's not enough for you to go through the effort of attempting to get a reprisal. It costs, right? It costs time. It costs money. You need lawyers are often involved or at least paperwork um, so that you don't tend to see it unless it's a really high amount. So 500 florin, 1,000 florin, sometimes into the tens. I've seen hundreds of thousands of florins or ducats on the line. And those things a monarch would take interest in. Because that is a lot of money on the table that belongs to your people and potentially to your tax base. If the monarch, the big boss of the country, <laughs> was getting involved, did politics play a part in it at any time? It can, definitely. I don't have a good example for Central Europe as such. The best one I can think of is the Hundred Years' War across the channel between France and England. This is the clearest. There are definitely ones for Central Europe. This is the clearest example where we can show the flip-flop between peace and war. So as I said earlier at the beginning, reprisals are not issued during times of war, right? Then, you know, I just grab the booty and run. But during times of peace, they are. So when you have a short stoppage in the Hundred Years' War, suddenly there's a burst of reprisals, which may or may not be... Uh, granted, depending on how the how much the monarch wants to retain the peace <laughs> and how much they want to say, screw it, we're going back. Uh, so those things, you can definitely see a political element. It also matters who is asking for the reprisal. So there you see much more as a local politics. If it's someone who is, the monarch wants to have you know, on their good side, say they, the king of... Um, of Hungary wants the Buddha merchants to be behind him. Maybe he needs some more <laughs> some more loans, as occurred very often in Hungary during that period. Then you he would be much more willing to issue reprisals. You'll see that we can at least tangentially apply that that was happening. So with the time and geography mapping of reprisals, you would actually understand an awful lot of politics, trade routes peace, war. 
It does. Yes, very much so. It's a nice window into, which is probably why it's hard to research. There's so many different avenues you can go down, so many rabbit holes, um, which is why I'm hopeful that this work will be uh, useful for other people who might be able to take it and run with it in some other way. I'm sure. We've talked about reprisals for a debt. Um, We've talked about reprisals after theft or piracy. Was that all there was or were there any other reasons for having a reprisal? In general, they tend to be for debts or piracy, robbery as well. So not just water (laughs) on water, but also on land. Robbers, uh, the same thing. But there is a very special, my favorite category to which these also apply, and that is dowries, the money that the groom is owed from the bride's family. Now, this is a type of debt, but it's a very specific one. And we see a number of reprisals related to these. So the dowry was not paid. And these are not, again, your local village maiden. These are duchesses. These are princesses. These are very wealthy women who are moving back and forth across jurisdictions. So again, usually between one country to another. And for some reason, the dowry is simply never paid over. And these will be brought up and there are a number, quite a surprising number of reprisal cases related to them. What a way to start a marriage. Indeed. (laughs) So what happened? Did the debt get paid off? And what happened if the marriage, one of the partners died early? Well, as it's a marriage contract, even if the individual died, as long as the marriage was carried out, consecrated, um, then the money is still owed. Uh, So you would still have to go through with that. I always had the impression that actually... Um, the widow got the dowry. Ah, if so, generally I was speaking of the the bride passing away. Yes, if the groom passes the way away, the idea is that the dowry is her insurance policy, right? It's the money, at least a portion of it, if not the entire amount, is reserved for her and her children, her minor children. So yes, in general, the wife should, or the, the now widow should have the money, but if the dowry was never paid, well, she's kind of out of luck. Yeah, that's another rabbit hole. That is. That is another worthy place of research. <laughs> yes. Timing-wise, again, these tend to be, some of these are very long cases, uh, especially because both families, I mean, we're talking the highest echelons, tend to have money so they can fight them, right? They can attempt not to have to pay them. They didn't pay it originally, so they probably don't want to now. Uh, so they will be they can be quite drawn out cases. So I'd say on average five, ten years, I've seen one as long as one hundred years, which eventually is never paid off. So uh, they this can go on for quite a while. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> The grandchildren still trying to get grandmother's dowry. Yes, this does happen. God. (laughs) Um, For my final question, thinking more about the the high level at which the reprisals were authorised, so by the king or senior duke, Mm -hmm. does the fact that they existed indicate that there was a high level of rule of law? as we would now call it, or actually quite a low level of rule of law? Mm, That is a very intriguing question. Hmm, I would tend to say it indicates a higher level of rule of law. 
Um, my work covers the full span or try as attempting to cover the full span of the history of reprisals. So looking back from the ancient period all the way through to the modern. And what we see in general is a, a moving away from what we call self-help. So an individual who goes out and says, all right, the guy in Frankfurt, someone from Buddha took my money. We're beating up the next dude who comes from Buddha and we're taking his stuff all on their own. That's true self-help um, and is not you know, legal in almost any system. It was still done, though, during, <laughs> during the earlier periods, but it's not legal. Um, it is very clearly made to be illegal starting around the 11th century. At that point, we have regulations that come down in various parts of Europe, and it expands over time, uh, depending on the development of the region, you will have rules that say, no, you cannot do this anymore. If you want to, you have to go through a legal process. You can then still get your money back, but you must go to the local judge. You must go through the court system. Eventually, that court system means the king, right? You must go to this higher and higher echelons that you must go through in order to eventually get a reprisal. And in that sense, the state, quote unquote, is developing and taking more of the authority away from an individual unto itself. You can still have this right, but you have to go through us to get it. You cannot just go off on your own and take the guy from Buddha and all of his stuff. So this, in a sense, we see a development in a greater rule of law. Yeah, I'm I am finding rule of law to get to be very, very interesting. And I think it's the more I travel around and look at Europe and how Europe does and doesn't work in comparison with other places. Um, but on that interesting note, uh, we have to leave it there. Leslie, thank you so much for coming and sharing your future work with us um, and your current work. It's been absolutely amazingly interesting, particularly for me, because I've got a slight business background. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. This has been lovely. I always you know, geek out on speaking about my work. <laughs> well, thank you for your time. Today, I've been talking to Leslie Carr-Eagle about her research into the right of reprisal, a customary law of international trade. I hope you found it as interesting and enjoyable as I did. And if you or your colleagues are doing research into the medieval world of Central Europe and you would like to talk about it to other MESAM members, please do contact me through the MESAM board or MESAM website administrator. I'm Karen Culver for the MESAM podcast. Thank you and goodbye until the next time. Mm-hmm.